Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, while the the main purpose of this verse is obviously to teach um, how God forgives sin, that God does forgive sin, justification, things like that, the beginning of the verse introduces us to an extremely important concept. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. The concept that is introduced here is the rationality of God. Our God is a rational God. Now, what do we mean by rational? What do we mean when we say that word? Well, for one thing, when you say that a person is rational, you mean that they're sane. A person who is rational is not a madman. A person who is rational is not confused. It's not capricious. It's not a person who is out of control. A person who is rational is not a person who is random or erratic or eccentric in the things that they do. A person who is rational is not inconsistent. Actually, a person who is perfectly rational is not a person who is inconsistent or contradictory or, for that matter, changeable. So if God is rational, then he's not wishy-washy. As James says in 117, a letter of James 117, Every good gift and perfect, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, while this may seem very plain Jane to us to talk about God not being erratic or inconsistent or contradictory or eccentric, this was a great revelation to the pagans of the time of the New Testament because all of their gods were eccentric and irrational and strange and confused and capricious. They could be deceived. They could be tricked. They could be confused. They were inconsistent. They changed their minds. Just look at the entire pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, and what you have are men, supermen, but they're just men. So this was a tremendous revelation, the idea of God as sane, But we don't need to stop there. When we talk about God being a rational God, we also mean that God thinks. A person who is rational is a person who thinks. God thinks. The scriptures speak of the thoughts of the Lord, as in Micah 4.12. Now, by definition, when God thinks, whatever he thinks is perfect. He has perfect thoughts. Whatever he thinks is what ought to to be thought. God's thoughts are not only perfect, his thoughts are eternal. Now that's very different from how we think. Uh, Our thoughts, we consider things when we think about something. We mull something over. We we take time to evaluate. We might waver between two things and decide on this one is the better. That's not God's thoughts at all. God is outside of time and his thoughts are eternal and they never change, which means they're complete. Because if God thought something new, that would mean there was something he hadn't thought of before. And that would mean he wasn't God. So God's thoughts are eternal, very different from us. His thoughts are also limitless and profound. Psalm 40 says, Many, O Lord, are thy thoughts which are toward us, and they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Limitless God's thoughts, because he is infinite. And if he is infinite, he's infinite in mind. And if he is infinite in mind, he is infinite in his clear, eternal, perfect thoughts. And they are profound Thy thoughts are very deep, the psalmist says, Psalm 92. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I know you all know this verse. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Seems rather self-evident, Isaiah 55, 8. But again, dealing in the context of the the pagan nations, this is not at all self-evident. God's thoughts, perfect, 
eternal, limitless, profound, are always accomplished. Whatever God thinks comes to pass. We might think about something and not do it. We might think about something, but we can't make it happen. We might desire it, but we can't make it happen. Whatever God thinks about comes to pass. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And for this reason in the Bible, God's thoughts are paralleled with, and and these words are all interchangeable, His purposes, which shall stand, according to Isaiah 14, 24, His counsel, which cannot be resisted, and His word, which always accomplishes what He pleases, Isaiah 55, 11. So, when God thinks eternally, whatever He thinks comes to pass, so by definition, It is his counsel, his purpose. Now, there's another thing about God's thoughts. They're perfect, they're eternal, they're limitless, they're profound, they're always accomplished, and they are orderly, purposeful, deliberate. We see this, since God's thoughts are eternal, we see this, for example, in his creation of the world. Perfect order over the course of six days. First this, then this, then this. Nothing out of order. He doesn't, he doesn't think up animals, uh, but oops, there's no land. <laughs> Guess they all drowned. Sorry about that. We'll try again next day. That's not like that. They're perfectly in order. In the work of redemption, which was conceived before the very foundation of the world, All the things that had to come to pass, in the order that they had to come to pass, all over the world, in order for the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ to take place through a hundred generations, they were all thought in a moment, eternally, but in a sense came to pass. And they were thought in that order, perfectly. God didn't get to some point and realize he needed to slip something else in. He's not like a a novelist who who, uh, has several chapters done, rips one out, oh, that doesn't work too well, maybe we'll move this part from the back up here. It's not like that at all. The whole plan, because we can talk of a plan with God, the whole plan was conceived perfectly orderly. And it's brought about in time through his providence. Everything that we see about the thoughts of God, as we consider the history of redemption, the history of creation, everything that we see about the thoughts of God convinces us that he is the most preeminently rational being that has could ever be in existence. Which, of course, is true. He's perfectly rational. He's a thinking God. Now, what else do we mean by rational? When we, we mean a person is sane, we mean a person is uh, someone who can think. But we also mean, when we talk about a person being rational, that they are governed by reason. Now, let me explain this. I do not mean to say that God is governed by reason as an outside force or law to which he has to comply. We say that God is holy, but we don't mean that there is a law outside of God which he has to obey and which if he did not obey, he would be a transgressor of it. As if there was a law greater than God himself. We do not mean this. When we talk about the holiness of God, God is holy, we mean that holiness describes his nature, that is, who he is. He is the Holy One. And when we talk about moral law, we merely mean the outward expression of God's nature as it applies to determining right and wrong in human life. I mean, there are many things about the moral law of God that are completely irrelevant to the being of God. God cannot commit adultery. Yet adultery 
is contrary to his nature. So when we talk about the holiness of God, we mean his nature as it is expressed to us by laws and commandments in human life. Well, God is rational, not that he is subject to outside laws of reason, but rather it is the nature of God. This is who he is. He is the holy one. He is, in a sense, the rational one. It is because he is perfectly rational that he never contradicts himself. He never changes in his ideas. He is never random in anything that he does. Because God is a rational being also, he can be known. Do you hear these words that we use to talk about knowing something, understanding? Come back to that in a second, but... God is, is, a, is a rational being and so he can be known. He is not merely something to be experienced. You see, that's the, the idea of experiencing God is the, is the cornerstone of New Age mystical philosophy, which is heavily invading evangelical churches. We don't need to talk about God with doctrine and work. We just need to experience him. It's a fundamentally irrational encounter with God. We don't even come away being able to say anything about God or think anything. It's like um, an immediate connection with God is the idea. And this, we're going to talk about this more next week, but this goes way back, not only Eastern mysticism, but even within the church, to the people who are called the pietists, who put away the word, the word got in the way of you getting to God. You put the word away. Experience God. But God can be known. He can be known with the mind. Now, is there a limitation to our knowledge of God? Of course there is. That is why the confessions say that God is incomprehensible. Now, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? How can we say that God can be known? The scriptures clearly teach God can be known, but he's also incomprehensible. Well, God is infinite and we are finite. God is inexhaustible and we are easily exhausted. What does it mean that he's incomprehensible? Not that he's irrational in his nature and being, not that he can't be known. Rather, he's incomprehensible to us in the sense that we can never fully fathom who he is. But God knows himself. Is God incomprehensible to God? Of course not. He knows himself, he knows himself fully, and he could exhaustively describe himself to himself with purposeful language. I know this sounds very strange, but just consider this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.10. The Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man inside him? Even so, the things of God no man knows except the Spirit of God. The teaching of this verse is that the Spirit of God completely knows God. So God is not incomprehensible to himself. It doesn't even make sense to say it. God fully and thoroughly and completely and exhaustively knows and describes himself to himself. But he could never fully and completely and inexhaustibly describe himself to us because that would be like me describing myself to a flea. It, it, it couldn't be done. It's like, um, how many of you know who Coco the gorilla is? Coco the gorilla, the, the, the gorilla they taught her sign language, all right? And she talks and she communicates and she knows like 80 words. Now, there's some interesting things about the, the things she communicates, but in point of fact, this gorilla knows 80 words. Could you go to Coco and, and, and in any kind of way that would be comprehensible and meaningful to that gorilla, describe the inmost thoughts of your heart and the nature of your being? Of course not. You have 80 words. And most of them are, Coco, eat. Coco, eat good. Soft cat. You can't even start. God's language to himself, however, 
is perfectly understood by Him, but it is beyond anything we could ever comprehend. The Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But obviously they mean something to God, or the Spirit was babbling nonsense. God knows what the Spirit is saying. It cannot be uttered by us. Now this is not just a metaphysical exercise that I'm walking you through, showing you about the nature of God and how He's perfectly rational and preeminent, because it has extreme significance when we get to this question. How would a rational God reveal Himself? He would reveal Himself in a rational way. And so, in the Incarnation, John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ, the Wisdom of God. The Son of God, who is the perfect, preeminent revelation of God, is called the Divine Logos, the Divine Word. Some have even paraphrased it as Christ is the logic of God. That's a little weird, but there's, there's an idea in that that is vitally important that we grasp. In redemption, how does, how does God describe His actions in redemption when He reveals Himself to us? He says that He enlightens the mind. I do not cease to give thanks for you, Ephesians 1, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and then on and on and on for the whole rest of the chapter of, of, of 1 Ephesians, describing doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. Paul is talking about truth, truth, propositional, meaningful uh, truth that can be talked about and can be understood. That's what the Spirit is doing. That's what He's praying for, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that their understandings would be enlightened, that they would know things. The mind of man is created in the image of God in knowledge. There is... So much material in this issue of redemption and God's revelation of himself that we would be here for weeks. The emphasis on the use of the word in salvation, born again by the word of truth. The whole emphasis of the scriptures on the teaching of doctrine, on the nature and purpose of truth. Everything in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, is to lead us to believe that in the great work of redemption, one of the chief things that God is doing, not the only thing, but one of the chief things that God is doing is enlightening the mind, instructing, delivering truth, and enabling us to understand it in a meaningful way. That is how a rational God would reveal Himself. If He were to reveal Himself in sending His Son in the incarnation of human flesh, a rational God would call him the divine word. Even in so-called supernatural revelation, I'm thinking about the visions, dreams, the, the, the prophetic ecstasies that the prophets would go into and see these strange things. Now, here is irrational revelation. We've got it now. No, you don't. Because every one of those revelations is set down in words. And it means something. A prophecy which can't be explained in words is useless to us, isn't it? If you can't talk about a prophecy, if you can't say, well, this is what it represents, this strange vision that Ezekiel has had. If you can't say that it has a meaning, that it stands for something, that it can be described and talked about, it's utterly useless. Paul has a vision. Come over here, says the man from Macedonia. He understood what it meant. It meant something in very practical terms. They were to undertake a missionary mission to Macedonia. Rational revelation. And if God wrote a book, which He did, if God wrote a book, it would be a rational book. 
God has chosen to communicate his revelation to us through word. God is the author of language, of communication. It's where it comes from. Communicates to himself. It's, it's a divine thing. And the rational God uses language in his book in a rational way. Uh, we have words in the Bible. Are they randomly put together? No, they're in sentences. Are the sentences fragments that are jostled together? No, they're in paragraphs. Are the paragraphs meaninglessly connected? No, they're in books. Are the books just all thrown in there? Like uh, there's some strange encyclopedia? No, they're all related to one another. He uses words to tell stories. He uses words to make promises and refute errors. He uses words to give histories and make parables and record prophecies. And most importantly of all, I submit, in our consideration, he uses words to make complex, logical arguments. Very, very complicated logical arguments that, that, that are very closely reasoned and difficult to follow. I'm thinking of Paul. <laughs> Not First John. Things that require mature study and thought. These arguments in the Pauline epistles are as advanced as anything you would find in some kind of complicated legal brief. And he uses words to say some things that are as plain as day. That, that a, a simpleton could grasp if God gave them the moral capacity to receive the word. So God has written the book and he's written it in a rational way. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that in order to understand God's words, in order to know what it is he's communicating to us, in order to learn the truths he desires to reveal, we must approach his word in a rational way. Now let's talk about, for contrast, some irrational ways that people use God's word. Does anyone know what a lot is in biblical terminology? A lot. It's a kind of a game of chance, or not really a game of chance, but to decide who is the chosen. That's right, that's right. It's use of something like a, a, a dice. What we would call it like a coin toss is a lot. It, it, it's used to get a random result. Uh, so you throw, you throw a dice, you have six sides, it's going to come up one of six. You can't predict when it's going to be. You flip a coin. We do this all the time. We use lots in, 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 in daily life in a kind of informal way. Now in the Bible, at certain times, there is actually a, what is called a religious use of the lot. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 or Proverbs 18.18. 18. The lot causes contentions to cease and decides between the mighty. It's interesting. Uh, the religious use of the lot is based on this supposition, that God is sovereign, that nothing happens outside of his control. So if I toss a coin in the air, it's sovereignly predetermined whether it's going to come up heads or tails. There really is nothing random in the world. And occasionally, in the Bible, there is a use of this lot, this, 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 this random obtaining of a result, to decide certain things. The division of the land, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, when Israel came into the land, uh, the families were settled in their various areas by lot. That was considered a, a fair way to do things, rather than you know, a prominent family getting the better place, which is how we do it today. Uh, also, for example, replacing Judas. They had certain criteria for what an apostle must be. They ended up with two qualified persons, and they appealed to God through a lot to choose which one it would be. This, this, uh, this is an interesting thing, and I'll come back to it at some later point in terms of the religious use of the lot and whether that has any application to us today. But here's the real problem. There are people who use the Bible as a 
lot as a determining, random determining device. Now, here's how it goes, the argument. Well, the Bible is an inspired book. And this is all God's word. The answers are in here, we know. And God is very wise. And he is in control of all things sovereignly. So when we come to some difficult question, perhaps, that we cannot find an answer to, we, we, and we must have an answer, we can appeal to God through his word, and we can use his word as, as, a, as, a, as a lot to decide the question. And so you have the best of both worlds. It's not just a random toss of the dice. Why, you have God's sovereignty, but you also have the inspired text. And so, we ask the Word of God a question, and we do that. And I took the liberty of trying it last night, and I asked my Bible, should I take a job that would require a move? And the Lord was very kind, and he gave me an answer that was useful for my sermon. Second Samuel twelve eleven. thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your own eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Thus leading me to believe that perhaps I should not take a job that would require me to move. But of course, that's absurd. The context is the judgment on David for the matter concerning Uriah the Hittite. Second Samuel 12:11 has nothing to say about my question of whether I should take a job that would require me to move unless I was intending to flee with another man's wife after killing him. Then we might have some moral relevance. It ought to also be obvious that this practice can only lead to nonsense in the true meaning of the word nonsense for example what if I asked the Bible whether I should marry a certain person and my finger happened to land in the verse of Leviticus that tells you that you should not eat dead things that you find on the road so what do you do you try it again well that one wasn't clear enough we'll do it another time Maybe this time we'll get, When should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not sure about that one either. So we go down this road until eventually we get something that we can either make a bizarre interpretation of or is something sort of positive or negative. And we now have confidence that we have this answer from God. Well, do you know what this is? This is occultism. That's what it is. There is a thing in the Orient called the I Ching. The I Ching is a system of Chinese divination where you have sticks and they have symbols on them. And you put the sticks in this tube and you shake them like this and you shake them and gradually one stick will come out and fall on the ground. And it has a little symbol on it. And then you go to a book. And the book is kind of an interpretive book to help you use the symbol, the meaning of the symbol to answer your, your question. Well, that's all people are doing with the Bible when they do this. But do you see how a sensitive conscience who was convinced that this is the word of God and someone has pervertedly taught them that this is a way to determine truth out of the scriptures. What if they had asked that question and gotten that answer that I got? They would have a bound conscience thinking that God was against them should they determine to move to another city to take a job. This is tragic. It is obviously contrary to the entire concept of the Spirit of God as a rational being that has organized His Word in a meaningful way with purpose. The, the Bible is not like those little eight balls that you get from, from, the, from the novelty store, you know, where you ask me a question and you shake it up and it comes up and it says yes or no or ask again later or maybe or something like that. That's not what the Bible is for. The Bible may very well have something to say about my question of whether I should move to another city. But it will have something to say in a meaningful way, like maybe I'm abandoning all Christian fellowship for the sake of a vast increase in income. The Bible certainly would have something to say about that. But it says it in a rational way. 
We have to read and understand and apply. And then we can answer those questions. Now let's talk about another thing. This one I feel is sadly more common. In fact, it's overrunning us, not maybe us here, but overrunning evangelicalism. And it goes like this. God gave me this verse. Now, there's a legitimate sense in which a person, prayer, meditation, comes to an understanding through an entirely reasonable process, through the work of the Spirit in his mind and heart, that some passage of Scripture, some section of Scripture, is meaningful to some issue in his life, some question she may have. And then there is the more common way, which is the illegitimate way, which is that some verse is pressed on a person's spirit in prayer, and it's grossly out of context and has absolutely nothing to do with their question. And it is hardly any better than this business right here. You know what it is? It's doing this inside your head instead of doing it in the Bible itself. And it's doing it with less uh, separation, less personal separation, which, which at least this message has the advantage of I'm not, I'm not you know, controlling anything except if I move the Bible at a certain speed, keep me out of certain books. There's all of this inward stuff tied up with us when we're having these so-called experiences of verses being pressed on us. But let me give you some examples. A man finds a satchel of money in the street, and it doesn't say who it belongs to. Should he turn it into the police? Why, in prayer, this verse occurs to him. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. A woman hears that her child is ill, but has no information on his status. She approaches the hospital at great speed in her vehicle, and she finds herself fastening by faith to this verse. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. A man is asked to provide a substantial loan to a Christian ministry. He finds himself strangely attracted to this verse in prayer. He must increase, but I must decrease. <clears throat> Recovering from an injury, a man wonders if he ought to get up and do some strenuous work in spite of his doctor's orders. And he hears this. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Now, obviously, every one of these is a gross misuse of Scripture. John the baptizer was not talking about what to do if you found money in the street when he said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He was teaching his disciples that Jesus' ministry was authentic which is an important fact to be learned from the text. Jesus healed that man's son from a distance. It was his second miracle after coming to Galilee. It was a miracle to confirm his messianic office and expose Jewish unbelief. But it was not a promise to you. Your child is in the hospital and you don't know if something bad has happened to them. The... The... Statement, he must increase, but I must decrease, was the word of John the baptizer regarding the conclusion of his ministry due to the coming of Christ. John had been the prominent one. Now Christ has come. He was the friend of the bridegroom, but the bridegroom has arrived. So he must decrease and Christ must increase. It is not talking about your personal finances and giving loans to a church. Nor does Lazarus's resurrection have anything to do with whether you ought to get out of bed before the doctor says so. Once again, the tragedy is that each one of these cases has relevant doctrines, relevant principles, relevant examples from Scripture that could be brought to bear. But two things happen in this situation. One is, you miss all the relevant three things. One is you miss all the relevant doctrines that could be brought to bear on the situation. Second of all, you miss the actual teaching of the verses that you are corrupting. And thirdly, you develop this strange conscience where you think you're bound by this thing or that thing that was pressed into your mind. This woefully awful interpretation. And it really comes down to this question. Is the Spirit of God 
rational in writing and applying his own word. Does the word of God have any possible meaning at any given time? Does it have any meaning at all? Because these examples defy it. And uh, these are funny, but I'm telling you, I have seen things like this in print, in Christian biography. I've heard people say things like this that are no weirder than anything that I've said right here, that I've made up. Does the Spirit of God use words in accordance with his own rational nature or not? There's an interesting story in this book, Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. Uh, It's kind of a heavy-duty book, but it's got some interesting things in it. He tells this story. He says, 20 years ago, I rode in a car with a fellow believer who relayed to me what the Lord had told him that morning in his quiet time. He had been reading the King James Version of Matthew, and I perceived that not only had he misunderstood the archaic English, but also the KJV itself had at that place unwittingly misrepresented the Greek text. I gently suggested there might be another way to understand the passage and summarized what I thought the passage was saying. The brother dismissed my view as impossible on the grounds that the Holy Spirit, who does not lie, had told him the truth on this matter. Being young and bold, I pressed on with my explanation of grammar, context, and translation, but was brushed off by a reference to 1 Corinthians 2.10, spiritual things must be spiritually discerned, which left little doubt about my status. (laughs) Genuinely intrigued, here it comes, this is like the punchline, genuinely intrigued, I asked the brother what he would say if I had put forward my interpretation not on the basis of grammar and text, but on the basis that the Lord himself had given me the interpretation that I I was advancing. He was silent a long time and then concluded, I guess that would mean the Spirit says the Bible means different things to different people. And brethren, that means the Bible doesn't mean anything to anyone. No one would accept this or act this way in real life matters. If you went to a doctor because your foot was hurt and he got out a medical textbook on open heart surgery and began reading to you from it, you would probably not stay. But, but there might even be something rational about that. But what if the doctor said to you, The moon in June is not in tune. You would run away. People with whom language does not follow normal rules of usage and meaning when you talk to them, do you know what we say those people are? Crazy. If you go to an old folks home, you know, you go to the old folks home and there's some poor old lady and she comes up to you and she says, she says, oh, what lovely flowers you are. (laughs) We understand that she has dementia. We don't think that there is a strange mystical meaning behind her words that applies to how we should live our lives and make decisions. But we insult the spirit of God. By attributing to him that which if we found it in any person would convince us that they had a serious mental condition. Third, third thing for today. Got the Bible is a lot. We've got the Bible. The, the, the God gave me this verse. Now I want to talk about another irrational use of the Bible. This is the Bible as a source of encrypted messages. We have, uh, this is nothing new by the way. There is an ancient thing called the Kabbalah. This is a, a, a Jewish mysticism and magical system that came, uh, rose during the Middle Ages, probably from about the 700s through the 1500s, and it kind of went underground. It's making a resurgence today, you'll be happy to know. Saw that in the newspaper. Kabbalah is hot. In the Kabbalic system, the scripture is sacred. The Hebrew scripture is sacred. But it is not 
because of the literal meaning of its texts, not the content of it that is sacred. It is the the letters themselves that are sacred. The, The actual letters and words and Hebrew characters. And what you get, the whole point behind Kabbalah is that the real meaning of the Bible is not in, in when you open it up and you read and you say, uh, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all that stood by him and cried. It has nothing to do with the real meaning. The real meaning is in the, is in the letters themselves. And you have to find it. It's encrypted in there. And so what you do, it's a system uh, where you have, you, you set the letters up and you, you find these codes kind of like a word search type thing and you find codes that are in there and there are these encrypted messages and there's numerology also associated with it highly mystical uh, occultic superstitious way of using the Bible extremely uh, hostile to real biblical understanding and that is why I am convinced it is popular amongst evangelicals today who are in fact running away from the Bible as fast as they can get now it's not the Kabbalah don't worry you're not going to go down to the Bible Church big and find the Kabbalah book there but what you're going to find is a book called the Bible Code this is all the rage all the rage today I mean you ain't nothing if you don't know the Bible Code The Bible code works like this, very similar to Kabbalah. You take the letters of the Torah, specifically, but other parts of the Bible, and you you arrange them in a grid and you hunt through them, like a word search, up, down, diagonal, backwards. And you can also include some of the texts that you're in, because you find the, the hidden message in conjunction with the literal text that you're in is what really gives you... Uh, the real significance. And so when you do this, you find all kinds of hidden words with important meanings. Uh, For example, the future is foretold quite frequently. You find out about the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. You find out about a world nuclear war that's going to come. You find out about JFK and the Pope. I mean, the whole gang's here. Everything you're looking for. Conspiracy World USA. It's right there in the pages of your Bible. You're just misreading it. And by the way, this proves also that the Bible is an inspired book, because after all, when you do the code right, it predicts the future. Now, of course, if you do the code right, it may also say Coke is it. And I don't don't know what that would mean. But um, however, I have a revelation for you today. You get that's not it. Where is it here? Got to pass out my special thing. There it is. I want you to know that we have a new book in the canon of Scripture. We have the consumer limited warranty of the Sharp DVD video player 650U. Now, this whole book may be inspired. It may, in fact, be inspired, but I've been working in the first five paragraphs of the consumer limited warranty. I hope there's enough of these to go around. You can kind of send it back. You may have to share. Now, this is, this is vitally important. Uh, you will discover... Oh, you know what? I bet I left mine in the uh, in the copy machine. I'm get, get my my master copy because I don't want I don't want to lose that. That would that would crush me greatly. I lost my master copy. What we find when we arrange the Sharp DVD consumer warranty, which is clearly inspired, thank you, is we find a system of code where there are shocking prophecies that are revealed. Now, I've, I've arranged them. I've, put, I've got the words down there for you. I've arranged them in a kind of order that makes sense of things. And I, I want to interpret them for you. I think we can make an attempt at interpretation. We have number one here, the row she sees. I think the row probably represents America because we have the fastest fighter jets in the world. The row she sees. What does she see? Check out number two there. Sees the, the bear rat sign war bear limit nine. Now, well, what does that mean? Well, the bear is Russia. Well, we know that for all prophetic history. The bear is always Russia. And the rat, I think, is China because they had the year of the rat recently. So the bear and the rat will make the sign of war in Bern. Bern is in Switzerland. Switzerland is a, probably, I think this has something to do with the United Nations. For a limit of nine. What is nine? What's a limit of nine? Nine days, nine months, nine years. I don't know. It could be something like that. So there's going to be a, a, some kind of war, a threatening of war between Russia and China, uh, especially in the, in the UN. But check this out. Look at number three there. Three-way cross on these words. Uh, rat win war. 
Isn't that amazing? Right there, rat win war. So, so we know China will win the war. That is amazing. That's the first prophecy of this section of the, the book. The second prophecy is more elaborate. Ten will race gulf. Up there, number four, up in the right-hand corner. Ten will race gulf. I think ten is probably the European Union. Race in the gulf. We all know what that means. It's going to be a struggle for oil in the Persian Gulf. But you'll see number five, one fort, and number six, one toe. There can only be one fort, one military power, one controller of all this oil, and one toe. What is the deal with toe? Bear with me. Number seven, the toe owl oil oil. And oil matches up with owl two different directions. It's oil twice. Oil twice there, number seven. Toe crossing owl with oil oil coming off the L and L. The toe, what's an owl? An owl is a watcher. So, so this is a watching nation. This is not one of the nations that's involved in the race. Not one of the ten who will be in the race. This is another nation who's, who's watching. And this owl, this watching nation or person, will have their toe in the oil. All of the oil. Two oils. So they'll have control of all the oil. But watch this. Number eight. Over there on the right side. Number eight with the eight coming off to the side. You can see all these are mixed up together. Her, the herd of ten toes. So we're back to the, the EU as a group. The herd of ten toes will seed to... You've got uh, seed there going diagonally. We'll seed to the toe. All that's right in there. So what, are the, what is the European Union going to give away in power to the toe, the, 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 the owl's toe that's in the oil that controls the oil? They need the oil. So what are they going to do? Watch this. Number, number nine and ten. Merchant stool, earn canoe, not long. Now, what is a, what is a merchant stool? A merchant stool... Uh, that's the financial power, the stool of the merchant. So, so, the, so the ten nations of the European Union are going to cede their financial power to the, to, the, to the owl, this individual or this nation, in exchange for what? To earn a canoe. <laughs> now, what is a canoe? A canoe can haul things. Clearly an oil tanker. But crisscrossing, not long. Right there in that section, not long. This is remarkable. Not long. It's not going to last for long. Why? Because number 11, sun, scribe, ire. All wrapped up with each other. Sun going up, scribe across, ire diagonally right through scribe. What's the son of a scribe? Biblical terminology, that's a, that's a learned judge. That's a great judge. Some person or nation who's concerned with law is going to have ire. They're going to become angry over this arrangement. And what will happen? Number 12, warrant, person, owl. The great judge will issue a warrant for the person of the owl. He'll, he'll, he'll have him arrested. Why? Because number 13, he lied about war. I don't know what that means. He falsely threatened some kind of war. Also, number 14 there, lied hot art. Hot art, uh, international treasures that are stolen, something like that. And, and so he'll be tried. Tried goes through lied. Uh, so he'll be tried, judged and condemned. Fascinating prophecy that I think we can await the fulfillment of. The third prophecy is strange. I don't understand this one at all. I, I'm kind of getting a handle on it. third prophecy starts up there at the top with number 15. The row, so we're back to America again, the row will sue. Row, sue. Some kind of, uh, they'll sue the rural sun. And what is the rural sun? I was very confused by this idea of the rural sun. I know what the rising sun is. That's Japan. What is the rural sun? But then I realized that sharp electronics is right there above rural diagonal sun. And sharp electronics is headquartered in Japan. So clearly the land of the rural sun, perhaps they're headquartered in rural Japan. I don't know. It's just my possible interpretation. So America is going to have some kind of trade war or international conflict with Japan over pure lace. Pure lace, you got me. Garments, fabric, something more, something more mystical than that. But we will agree to chase the original cans. That's right there all together. Uh, this part is very dark. I don't understand this part at all. I think it may have something to do with Coca-Cola, the original cans. But I'm not, I'm not very clear. That's the third prophecy. The fourth prophecy, bear in mind, all this only took me about two hours to find. Although it was very two hours of very intense study on this, on this section. I know that you think I have too much time, but uh, the, fourth, the fourth prophecy, I, I like this one. George, you like this one too. Man-man uh, labor, peer-pair in mine mist, workman's tort, first name Owen. This is cool. This is cool. 
if you look there in section 16, man-man is right in the, in the, the lower right corner. Man-man comes off the M two different directions. I mean, what's the odds of that? It's, it, 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 it's probably common. Anyway, man-man <laughs> coming off two directions. So two men with labor, right, right, cutting right through it. Two working men. Where do they work? Pier pair. That perfect sense. They're unloading or loading fruit onto a boat in a dock. Okay, two men working on a dock, unloading or loading fruit. Pier pair. Now, I don't know what this in the mind of mist is. I, I'm confused by that. There's some location or something. But look at this. What's going to happen? These two laboring men, there's going to be a workman's tort. Right, right across. Workman's and tort going down through there on the left side. Workman's tort. Somebody's going to get injured. Somebody's going to file a lawsuit because they hurt themselves working, unloading or loading the fruit on the dock. And this is incredible. First name going up right below first and off the N in, in name backwards, Owen. The first name of the man will be Owen, who files the workman's torrent. <laughs> Now, I don't know if this is a literal prophecy or if this is something that we're going to interpret more, more uh, you know, uh, some kind of mystical thing. But anyway, and, I, and, and here's the kicker now. I didn't put this on your page because I was saving this for the grand finale. Here's the kicker. Lest you think I am nuts, which is number 17 there, <laughs> there is a personal confirmation that was a message to me. A message to me in this to personally confirm that I was on the right track. Can you, you won't believe this. Number 18. It's down on your lower left-hand corner there. All of these words are basically intersecting one another. I, it's right there in the little right, the little I down at the bottom in warranties. I hate, these are four letters uh, up on the left part, H-A-T-E. They're kind of weirdly arranged. You have to put them together like boggle. I hate, then look what's going right down through the middle of it. Beat. I hate beat. It gets better. It gets better. Right there, going across above, diagonally off of above, all, and going through it, other. I hate beats above all other foods. This is a message to me. To prove about the shocking prophecies revealed in the Sharp DVD warranty. I've only just begun my study of this book. And, I mean, it has, it has you know, there's probably a hundred pages, well, this is 47 pages, and some of them are in foreign languages, which is going to be a, an interesting exercise by itself. Now, you know, obviously, it's ridiculous. But why is it, if that's ridiculous, that the Bible code is like a nationwide Christian bestseller? I'll leave you to answer that question. Obviously, to me, I mean, clearly what they're saying is this. The literal text exists as a cipher, as a puzzle grid. That's the purpose of the literal text. It exists as a puzzle grid from which we, by study, locate the hidden messages, which, of course, are always relevant to contemporary events and generally seem to confirm uh, conspiratorial views of history, which is another remarkable aspect of the Bible code. So the Bible then is reduced to a kind of perverse religious cross between Boggle and Where's Waldo, <laughs> with a little Nostradamus thrown in for seasoning, because some of it's weird and you've got to have the special interpretive powers to understand what they're talking about. Well, the fact of the matter is, the Bible is full of perfectly clear messages. Read in a normal, rational way, it is itself full of predictions that came true. Predictions about Jesus Christ, not about who shot JFK, or whether there's going to be another season of, 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 of Baywatch. It has more prophecy in it than most of us will ever need. This use of the scripture is irresponsible, occultic superstition. It should be driven off, laughed off the shelves. The, you should be seeing piles of those books in the little 50 cent book bin at Walmart where they can't get rid of things. We're cooking with beets also. Same <laughs> section. We, we worship 
a God who has clearly revealed his will according to his rational nature. He has given us a very great and valuable word to guide us. He opens our minds, some people's minds, by the Spirit that we might receive the truth. There are some people's minds who I'm hoping he's going to open more in the near future. Uh, If we want to know who God is and what he requires... You know, these things are really about, especially the first two things, they're really about a shortcut. They're they're really about avoiding the basic, hard, sometimes hard, sometimes easy, but involved spiritual work of studying the Word of God, the way it ought to be studied, of thinking. So we've got to get away from thinking. Thinking is bad. Doctrine is bad. Experience is good. And so this is just a new kind of experience we'll have with the Bible. There is no shortcut. You study, hard work, instruction, commitment. There's no pill that you can take that will turn you into Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight. There's not even a biblical version of steroids, really. You open this book, you immerse yourself in it, you treat it like God is a rational being who would communicate to you in a rational way, just like you would talk to other people. You do not treat it like God is some eccentric, doddering old man who walks about mumbling strange phrases to himself and putting words in weird orders so that you have to come up with all kinds of bizarre interpretations as to what in the world he's saying. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may find what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12. Psalmist says, Psalm 119, How I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers because your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. This word is so precious that it is such and it is such a terrible, terrible waste to invest any time at all in reading trash like the Bible code and thinking that it has something to say to us. God has something to say to us, and it's pretty long. And it'll take you a while to get through it. But it will change every one of us. Always. Forever. Until we die and are finally glorified in heaven. And I think that we can almost say that glorification will be when, when this word completely transforms us by the Spirit of God. Well, that's where we'll stop for today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have communicated to us. We thank you that you have not left us to perish in ignorance. We thank you, Lord, that you, you change, you open our minds. For, Lord, even though your word is plain and clear, because of our moral rebellion, we cannot understand your word. And we hate even that which we know until you change our hearts and you enlighten our minds. And we praise you and we thank you for this rich mercy that you have bestowed, that we live in a country where we have the word in our own language, where we have the word uh, taught to us, where we have the word on our shelves, where we can go to a store and, and if we lose our copy of the word, we can buy another one. Lord, these privileges have not belonged to all people of all times. They do not belong to all people today. And we pray that you would cause us to cherish it, and we pray that you would cause us to use it the right way. For using it the right way by the blessing of your Spirit, 
we come to that increased knowledge of you that transforms us and enlightens us and makes us to be more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. And in his name and for his sake, we ask these things. Amen.